Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in Lighthouse's workshops. Each draft hovers around a given theme and happens once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the Draft 19.0 was Games People Play and featured personal essayist Rodney Bell, young adult writer Ashley Hastings, short story writer Sarah Fisher, poet Madeline Garner, and novelist Dan Manzanares. Hello, welcome to the Draft 19.0. I don't think we'll ever have like a 19.5. That would be... That would, that would be strange, yeah. Um, thanks for coming um, to the draft. Um, in case you don't know, who doesn't know what the draft is? What, you know, that's so nice that you're here, even though you're not sure what it's about. Um, so the draft is uh, Lighthouse's way of celebrating the incredible talent that exists in the workshop, that exudes from the workshop, that flows in and out of the workshops, right? Something like that? All right, I'm, I'm searching for the metaphors here, yes. You didn't have to stop so fast. That's okay. Um, so it's a celebration. And we have five draftees tonight. Usually we only have four. Um, but, you know, that's the Lighthouse way. We can't really count. So um, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for supporting Lighthouse. Okay, so the lineup tonight is Sarah Fisher, Rodney Bell, Ashley Hastings, Madeline Garner, and bringing us home is Dan Manzanares. Yes. Who's in, who works for Lighthouse. Where is he? Where are you, Dan? The amazing Dan. Yes, he's our creative curator. He runs all the stuff. He puts the chairs in nice rows, and it's, he's amazing. And what? He turns on the mic and the light bulbs. Look at the light bulbs, aren't they? Yeah. Okay, so um, a couple of the instructors could not make it tonight to introduce our people, so <laughs> you're stuck with me introducing them. So um, first up, we have Sarah Fisher. And she was drafted by John Carter, um, wonderful instructor. And I'm just going to read what, what, what John had to say about Sarah. Sarah's story, Disclosure Statement. Is that the new title, Disclosure Statement? Okay, good. You changed it, right? Yes. I like it. It's a good one. Disclosure Statement. It's nice. I like it. Sarah's story, Disclosure Statement, is all about language, ethics, and the ethics of language. Financial institutions are, this is John Carter, by the way, so, yeah. Financial institutions are our cathedrals, and just as the language of sin and damnation moved the stars in the Middle Ages, so that of insolvency and liability moves our own. Amen, that's true. When we speak of our values, our self-worth, our winners and losers, we speak in the fear and surety of a settled faith. As the heroine of our story, Crystal with a K, later Christine without, or gobbledygook girl, I'm already intrigued, writes to her former boyfriend, quote, I trusted that you understood that everything we do in the financial world and or in actual life presents risks, end quote. (laughs) Is it more dangerous to conflate our business and personal lives or to exile them to separate spheres? Does the mafia hitman sound any more humane when he assures us it's only business? 
This story inaugurates a new form, the poetry of the financial statement, or the small print of one. Like most financial statements, it's made of a language both obscurantist, obscurantist, yeah, that's right, maybe just obscure and cold. That's the point. Like all good fiction, it attunes us to the vocabulary of our world in a way we hadn't seen before. Many of you know Sarah's work. She debuted an early version of Disclosure Statement at Grand Lake earlier this year. She's a former newspaper reporter and now a marketing writer who felt inspired to start writing fiction after reading Jane Ann Phillips's Black Tickets. I can guarantee she'll inspire with her own collection when it appears. Publishers take note. Please welcome Sarah Fisher. really hard to follow. John Carter is an amazing writer, as you can tell. Just remarkable. Okay, this is Disclosure Statement. It is hereby acknowledged that certain parties to said, at said firm did refer to me behind my back as the gobbledygook girl. However, as to the financial disclosure statements referenced in your email, which I did write, they were, contrary to your contention, full and accurate. And yes, in 8-point font, which, though small, was deemed necessary and or legal, based on the large quantity of data to be conveyed, <laughs> and though they did describe complex financial instruments using unfamiliar terms, such as tranche and derivatives, which it is freely acknowledged can, in certain cases, pose a knowable and, yes, unlimited risk, nevertheless, said risks in Investors such as yourself, A, should have understood, due to the description of above-mentioned instruments in said disclosure statements, and B, would have understood had you taken the time to read said statements and not thrown them immediately into the recycling bin, and therefore might have chosen not to take said risks and consequently not lost your principal balance of $821,000, but unfortunately, you did not read them. <laughs> Naive optimist though you apparently are, with your focus on the great upside potential, which of course is more pleasant to consider, perhaps and in retrospect clearly, I might have been more direct with you during those rare occasions when you were not playing Team Fortress 2. However, having no prior knowledge of the scant attention you pay to important financial benchmarks, in addition to trivial benchmarks such as birthdays and anniversaries, of which I was aware, I trusted that you understood that everything we do in the financial world and or in actual life presents risks. And when we are not aware of the weaknesses that underlie our selected investments and or relationships, nor are we fully aware of our lack of awareness, and when we would rather spend our time shooting zombies and ignoring the warning signs right there in front of our faces and in black and white, notwithstanding font size, we are especially vulnerable to incurring loss. No, I do not share your regret at ever having taken this position at this firm, an affiliation with which has long been a high-value goal for me, and by long I am referencing a period of time beginning on or before my 17th birthday, when that banker, twice my age, took me to Las Vegas, thus predisposing me to a taste for the finer things in life, not dissimilar to those things to which you have been accustomed since on or before the day of your birth, and said date upon which said banker imparted a clear understanding that said fine things would require certain parties, i.e. me, to work really hard at an actual job that could supply a positive cash flow of a magnitude such as that which I deemed possible only at this or substantially similar Wall Street firms. <laughs> 
that said entity banker was the father of my best friend Maddie in Hutchinson, and therefore a figure of trust, casts behaviors into negative territory, and I am perfectly aware that this may be irksome to you, as it has been to other parties. However, it should be noted for the umpteenth time that I entered into this relationship willingly. I represent that banker admired me for attributes other than my youth and physical appearance, i.e. my intellect, and said, and that said admiration engendered a belief that I was as good as anybody else and inspired me to perform a personal due diligence, after which I determined that my fixed assets could be redeemed for the highest value beyond the confines of the small Christian college I was attending, namely at Brown, where I was offered a full scholarship and subsequently made your acquaintance. In reference to statements by other parties that I left Hutchinson because I was, quote, driven out of town, I hereby disclose the following factors which contributed to my transfer to Brown, i.e., one, my mother, who was requesting that I cease my affair with Banker, as it had incurred the wrath of his wife, Janice, who attended the same church, (laughs) and two, my father, who, having heard of the trip to Vegas, sought out Banker, as is evidence in various judicial disclosures, and inflicted bodily harm, i.e. fractured mandible and bruised spleen. In turn, legal charges were levied, lawyers were retained, and a short prison term of no longer than 18 months was imposed, the express result of which was a considerable debt overhang for my parents, which my mother, deeming my father responsible, used as a justification for divesting emotionally from him by way of high-velocity flirtations augmented by increased liquidity, i.e. wine, thereby creating a deflationary domestic spiral. Said mother engaged in some panic selling, soliciting deposits from men not less than 20 years her junior at the local bars, and leaving me exposed to anonymous anonymous phone calls from local busybodies inquiring as to my mother's behavior and informing me that she was devaluing the family name. (laughs) That the above-referenced information was never fully disclosed to you and or our friends at Brown, I completely acknowledge. Notwithstanding, the details I did disclose were similar in kind to the actual facts, though not identical, but these discrepancies were intended strictly to preempt any unnecessary drama on the part of my so-called friend Cindy and included important factual basis points, i.e., my mother did produce multiple advertising collaterals, and if you had ever bothered to ask the nature of her clients, you would have been told by me that the materials were produced in the course of her employment as a manager of an Olive Garden restaurant. And though my father was in prison, which I never would have de- denied have you, had you ever inquired, he indeed was carefully managing his money from that location, as well as writing a novel, albeit via prison-lit class. But this, I would posit, does not conflict with any material fact facts revealed to you. It is true that my migration to Brown incorporated some restructuring, as is outlined below, though it was minimal, minimal and not, as you say, an attempt to hide my true identity. Modifications included a name change, but only from Crystal to Christine, and not a change of my last name, as some parties have expressly stated to you, a slight amendment of hair color and texture from ash blonde to the current higher value blonde, a straightening and cut of said hair to the current status terminating at my shoulders, and a shedding of unwanted pounds during a 30-day period immediately prior to my arrival on campus. The fact that I relished the new, more selective relationships which flowed accordingly following my transfer to Brown 
and that said gains were multiplied by the absence of tensions with my respect to my parents should be no cause of criticism from you, as this was clearly the intent of your matriculation, as is implicit in your father's promise to donate $2 million to complete the new athletic facility should your request for admission be granted, in spite of your low aggregate SAT scores and high-risk drug-related behaviors in prep school. (laughs) The gains derived from my transformation were of direct benefit to you. As is acknowledged by the events occurring immediately prior to graduation, i.e., when we first hooked up and you invited me to your family's camp in Maine for Easter weekend. I can disclose now that I was unsure of my interest in you and would have declined, but that Cindy, whom I have recently come to understand had been engaged in some high-risk ventures with you prior to our relationship, which was not revealed to me by you as is courtesy in this era of STDs, informed me that your father was, quote, filthy rich, which makes Jeff a lot more interesting, end quote, and that said father knew many big shots on Wall Street, and as my financial, my goal after graduation was to land a job in the financial sector, I should definitely go. I would further remind you that though you were made well aware of my desire to make initial positive impression on on said father's acquaintance and banking bigwig Al, you nonetheless instigated a near derailing of my stated goal at lunch when you laughed at me before the assembled group, which, as you may not recall said occurrences or may claim to not recall them, I will enumerate. One. When being unfamiliar with artichokes, I cut up the leaves into bite-sized pieces and with great difficulty attempted to chew and swallow them. (laughs) Two, when I whispered in your ear, is your sister-in-law pregnant? And instead of just saying no, you said, Monica, Christine would like to know if you are with child. And three, whereas following the lobster course, a maid deposited a warm, damp washcloth into my hands with tongs, I used said washcloth to wipe down the table in front of me. Your mocking behavior, which caused great embarrassment for me, was fortunately irrelevant to referenced entity Al, whom I have since heard your father disparage in borderline anti-Semitic terms, and who, on the spot, offered me this job supporting the products under discussion, i.e. derivatives, which at the time your father excitedly praised as you nodded in agreement for their ability to provide cash liquidity to the markets while simultaneously making investors such as yourselves a ton of money, while I being unfamiliar with said financial instruments, listened in a manner of one trying to be agreeable, similar to a daughter, fearing that the asking of many questions would engender additional mocking behaviors from you. In addition, the the intent of this document is not to, one, fully explain to you as a friend what happened to your money, the primary outcome you state you desire in your email, though it is evident that there is an inappropriateness as to said email and with respect to the term friend, i.e., that your communication is not de- was not delivered in person or via phone call, which would have been more appropriate for stated friendship, which in itself is inaccurate and misleading term is an inaccurate and misleading term considering that which occurred prior to the above-mentioned loss event, i.e. our cohabitation and certain related activities performed in my bedroom with an unimaginative chop-chop between really totally awesome episodes of Game of Thrones, nor to, to redeem myself by asking your forgiveness, the second outcome you desire, due to the fact that I, A, feel no impulse to beg or grovel or redeem anything, as you are an adult and responsible for your own foolish actions and any and all financial consequences of said actions, and B, I believe I have, fully, I have fulfilled any obligations to you according to the terms of our implied contract. 
On the contrary, the intent of this communication is to disclose the emotional reference points contributing to our current status and to note that our relationship termination date has arrived and that the notational amount of my feelings for you has been effectively reduced to zero. Thank you, Sarah. That was wonderful. I think she did that in like, she took three breaths, it seemed like, didn't it? It was amazing. Incredible. Now you know what the small print's all about. Okay, next up, um, it's my pleasure to introduce Rodney Bell. Um, he's been a student of mine. He's a fantastic writer, um, a very astute student, good at critiquing, um, very smart guy, and he's got great hair, always, and nice, cool glasses, too, always, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, so... Um, that's me waxing poetic about Rodney. Um, here's what Catherine Eastburn, her, um, his instructor, has to say. Like the best writers in the American South, Rodney Bell finds his muse in the landscape of his upbringing, Sand Mountain in Alabama. Rodney grew up on a dirt road about eight miles from Fort Payne and attended school in the same cinder block building from kindergarten through 12th grade. And he's wearing shoes now, so I think that's good. That's excellent, yeah. A career in corporate communications and public relations marketing communication brought him to Denver via Atlanta and Dallas about 13 years ago. He lives near Five Points Curtis Park and has taken several workshops at Lighthouse as well as a number of LitFest sessions. A writer since second grade, Rodney studied creative writing at the University of Alabama and had a film script for a half an hour drama filmed and produced in Zimbabwe. Exotic. Most recently, he has turned his attention to the personal essay. His instructor, Catherine Eastburn, and fellow writers in the Intermediate Advanced Personal Essay Workshop were wowed by his piece, Old Goat, Young Pup, and its parallel narratives of the hard bargains we strike in life and their lasting impacts. Please welcome Ronnie Bell. I'm missing a game, too, Mike. Alabama and Arkansas. <laughs> Old goat, young pup. I killed the old goat. Not the first time I had caused a creature to lose its life, but this time I would pay for it. I ran over the animal returning to Sanyadi Mission Clinic. My Zimbabwean interpreter, tall, slim, and young Darlington, shook his head with a cautious smile. Brother Rodney, this goat will not get up again. Maneuvering the pickup along Zimbabwe's raggedly potholed bush roads had overtaken my skill behind the wheel. Bounding from the thick brush, the doomed creature broadsided the right bumper. An hour later, I mopped my brow with a damp bandana and squared off against the wrinkled owner of the recently departed. Facing the old man triggered a childhood memory. Another animal, another skirmish. I concentrated on the one before me. He rested on bended legs like a hyena on its haunches. Stained green sheets crumpled around him. Late-day heat warmed the hospital room's cinder-block walls. The patient's head rocked as if a faint war chant drummed ear to ear. His shriveled mound was salted with whiskers crowned by a bald black spot. Pronounced facial bones contoured his expressionless savanna. He leaned upon an arm, knotted elbow distended from bony limb. Against protruding ribs, each breath scratched. I stepped forward to face charges. As a white foreigner and newly independent black-ruled Zimbabwe, I treaded carefully. Darlington spoke in a respectful hush. 
White teeth punctuated his round face, bug-eyed by thick-rimmed glasses. Each time he gave understanding to my words, his shoulders bowed like a father to a child. He recited as if giving a deposition, reflecting the grave demeanor of the hospital ward where the old villager now held court. Your goat ran in front of my truck, I enunciated carefully. Darlington's deferential and fluid Shona translation was hounded by the man's groans. The whites of his eyes rolled toward me as saliva pooled at the corner of cracked lips. A fly buzzed his head. Get my wife, the man whispered, calling up reinforcement. She was camping in the visitor's compound. Darlington nodded to a nurse who scurried from the doorway. We brought the goat so you would have it, I said, to eat. This goat, what did it look like? Like every other scrawny piece of precious domestic livestock traipsed in the bush veld. Instead, I held my tongue. My eyes wandered from chipped concrete floor to metal bed frame, then to the IV bottle dripping fruitlessly into the man's arm, to the balloon beneath his hospital gown, and finally to his bloodshot eyes. Body odor and chlorine assaulted my nostrils. The elder rustled the frayed cotton sheets. The sound released an echo, another rustling from twig-like limbs. I gazed past the man, old man out the window. My answer recalled a boy's voice, my own, black with a white loop around its neck. I found him huddled in straw on the rough beam floor. Behind jumbled hay bales quivering from damp cold, the Mexican midget with ears pointed and pink shifted on his haunches. The black and white chihuahua eyed me fearfully and whimpered once. The stray, swollen stomach rose and fell through each breath. A black fly sipped from the corner of one eye. His skin was sensed in dog ears. He was probably about my age. Abandoned dogs were coming along the dirt and deserted roads in our Appalachian corner of 1974 Alabama. Mangy, scrawny canines skirted our yard, foraging table scraps. Dad would grab his gun, grunting about how people didn't deal with their own damn dogs. Mama would lament that it was no way to treat poor, unwanted things. I stepped around him and finished pitching hay from the barn loft into a battered old pickup. A north wind scraped the late October afternoon. Cattle moaned, ready to clumsily race the truck to a rise where I spread the bells. Two years short of driver's license, I would grind gears as I maneuvered the muddy tracks, trying not to hit livestock. I grabbed a feed sack and inched forward. Gently, I swaddled the tiny creature in burlap. His frightened heart quivered against my chest. His mucus-coated nose nuzzled my neck. Clutching him, I backed down the ladder one-handed and gently deposited him on the passenger-side floorboard. Hold on, little fellow. Once I finish feeding, I'll take you home. The scratching of claws as it fought to sit upright was followed by a guttural whine. I refused to glance down as we bounced across the pasture. I was hurting him. Not for long, I promised. My leg shook impatiently through the terminal waiting. Darlington soothed the room with his lyrical voice. The old man shifted hip to hip and clawed at the fly with a hand. Excuse me. The old man shifted hip to hip and clawed at the fly with a hand resurrected from his lap. His raw nose flicked, flecked dried skin and mucus. A jabbering woman careened into the room. The wife boasted large breasts and significant posterior, her body draped in a green, red, and black mosaic that Zimbabwean women prized. She roosted at the foot of the bed, shaking her head and clucking sadly. Darlington smiled at me, blinking behind his glasses. This man is his village's oldest father. He has many daughters. 
I recalled that goats were a form of currency given as a dowry, lobola, to purchase a wife. Zimbabwean fathers parlay daughters into goats to be traded, eaten, or milked to death. This signaled a shift in negotiations. I scrapped a metal chair across the pockmarked cement floor. Plopping down, I asked, what do I need to do to settle up? Five dollars and return the goat to my home so my family can skin and eat it. I'll give you four dollars and leave the goat here. I did not want to retrace strange and scrubby terrain after nightfall. The odds of more hit and runs increased after dark. His wife, staring vacantly at the floor, took up the chant. This goat was special Ebola paid for our oldest daughter. A fine goat, the old man chimed in. We had him many, many years. Maybe I put him out of his misery, I thought. <laughs> Brother Rodney, this man thinks the goat is worth more money, and he wishes you to transport it to his home. Darlington's gentle admonishment reminded me of my temporary status as an aid worker. I represented God, Jesus Christ, Ronald Reagan, and Western benevolence, not necessarily in that order. He's trying to take advantage of me, Darlington. I directed my voice at him and my gaze at the old man, who locked me in the corner of his eyes where the sap of years stagnated. Your family is here at the hospital. Eat the goat here. Take the goat back and give me five dollars. We have no truck, the wife wailed. The patient in the other bed bellowed. I will skin the goat for a slice of meat. Five dollars and I lead the goat here. I hoped Darlington was not wearing of me as he volleyed my bartering. Outside, a drawn-out equatorial sunset pulled across the sky like a sheet over a body. Darlington grew animated as his translations of my few words grew longer. I trusted that he was covering me the best he could. I will skin the goat, croaked the parched remnant in the other bed. <laughs> Five dollars is my final offer. The old man's head dipped to one side. His voice held despite a gurgle of phlegm. Evaporated lips cracked a dry smile. You must take it home. Do not bring that animal into this house. Mama wiped flour-dusted hands on her apron as cut okra spit and sizzled in a skillet. I retreated from the back door and deposited my bundle on the concrete carport. What are we going to do with him? The dog's head lolled to one side, half out of the sack. We're not going to do anything with him. Your father won't be home until late, and I'm in the middle of fixing supper. She walked over to the wall phone. I lingered on the steps. The dog sniffed my heels. Mom reappeared, framed in lemon-colored kitchen light. Carry him over to Nancy and Carl's. Carl can take care of him. Why can't I take care of him? Mother misunderstood. I don't trust your aim. I cuddled the little fellow across a harvested cornfield. Forgotten husks crinkled beneath each step. The sun slumped upon a patch of dusty horizon. Tall in his yard, Carl waited with the trees. My steps slowed as I approached his property line. When I crossed over, I laid the dog at his feet. Next to the thin, hard man's boots lay a gray object. My eyes lifted from the hammer to Carl's set face. The barely living raised his head and whined once. The old man's wife moaned, holding her stomach in emotional pain. We have no other goat like this. What can I do with it here? We must eat the goat. I will skin the goat. I glared at the next door nagger and repeated, Five dollars, that's it. The fly, smelling fresher blood, attacked my face. I slapped it away. With raised palm, the old man summoned silence. He rattled on for minutes. Darlington nodded and hummed with compassion. The woman grunted approvingly. Elbows on knees, I entreated one last time with my eyes. 
Half his family had to be camped outside the hospital. He might even manage a morsel or two if they cooked the animal here. I scanned his weathered face for a reason. Money was not my issue, I told myself. One Zimbabwe dollar equaled 65 American cents. No, it was the hassle of driving back to the village. It was this man holding his deathbed over me as he haggled. It was that flickering grin when I addressed him directly. I wrestled for an upper hand. He tilted his crown. A shriveled stick floated back to an enlarged stomach as the old man forced to cough, scanning my face for one more offer. Standing, I dug a bill from my pocket. A black fly circled my head. The esteemed father's hand levitated before me, a serpent summoned. His yellow teeth protruded stubbornly past fractured lips that curved upward at the corners with trembling effort. I will skin the goat. Five Zimbabwean dollars later, I dragged the carcass from the truck and dropped the sacrifice under a tree outside the clinic. Wife and kids descended upon it. An iron pot of mealy mill boiled over a nearby fire, awaiting the main course. Light had leached from the sky, and a black oar stained the twilight still blue. Darlington placed a light hand upon my shoulder. A man must not give up too soon. Brother Rodney, you and this father will sleep well. Carl squatted, spat tobacco on the ground. Lower lip trembling, I dropped to my knees, stilled my face, squared my shoulders, and raised my gaze to meet Carl's stony expression. Slip him in the sack. My hands wrestled the dog deeper inside the burlap. Carl's tanned and calloused hands firmly gripped its neck underneath the coarsely textured shroud. The animal's head and snout formed a pronounced outline. Burlap squirmed. Carl lifted the hammer above my head. Three weeks after Signati, a crumpled letter arrived. Darlington's deliberate handwriting, velvety as his voice. Brother Rodney, greeting and peace to you. I have news. Remember the man with the goat? He told many how you paid him a good price. His family enjoyed a feast. Three days later, the old man joined his old goat. His family buried the patriarch with a grand funeral, funded in part by my blood money. Afterwards, they returned to the village. They prepared fields, planted maize, herded goats, milked them, slaughtered them, ate them. I folded the letter deliberately. When I offered the $5 note, the stubborn old goat had not reached for it. He presented his leathery palm as an offering plate as I surrendered my payment. A delighted last cackle escaped his throat. I had given him more than I thought. A crimson blossom upon burlap, then the sack went limp. I tried to sound matter-of-fact. I could have done that. Call grinned and tousled my hair. Ain't as easy as it looks. Have to pop them square atop the head. We stood together. Should I bury him? I asked, stuffing numb hands in my pockets. He's just a stray, son. He held the sack. A thick drop of blood spotted the ground. You best get home. I played my way back. Brave new eyes now saw a brown-filled battleground. I dodged and darted dead stalks. I aimed a stick at the sky and shot down the first faint star. I tripped, hit the ground hard, rolled over on all fours, and pressed a briar into my palm. My head snapped up. I whined only once. I plucked the thorn from my hand, kicked the dust, and jumped to my feet. Ha! I taunted my foe. Didn't get me. I remember how I fought all the way home.
Thank you, Rodney. Well done. Next up, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you to the instructor who will introduce you to Ashley Hastings. Um, it's always a, a pleasure to see her smiling face here at Lighthouse before class. Um, Victoria Henley. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that no matter the genre, to write well is deceptively difficult. And in the genre that I work with, which is young adult, one of the difficulties is that our characters are adolescents. And so part of what needs to be conveyed is all of the joy and the pain and the pain (laughs) and the joy and the breakthroughs and the breakdowns of being a teenager. And all of the many firsts that occur as that young person meets adulthood. And what could be more important than first love? And writing about first love and making it actually fresh and not making fun of it and not crossing the line into sappy and cliché is really quite difficult. But Ashley Hastings makes it look easy. She does it beautifully. And I'm going to say a little bit more about her story, but first I'm going to say a little bit about her. I'm going to hopefully embarrass her. <laughs> when I asked her if there was anything that I, she wanted people to know about her, she typically said, no. She's completely humble. I don't think she has any clue how great she is. And um, she has been workshopping here for a couple of years. And in a workshop, there are two roles that, are get, that get played. There's the workshopper and there's the workshopee. And as a workshopee, every, every time she brings pages that leave people wanting more. When people read her pages, they say, why did it stop? We want more. And that's always my response as well. And not only that, but as a workshopper, she is so kind and so encouraging to her fellow writers and yet really gives exquisite insights into what's needed to improve. Uh, You really are great. I hope you can hear that. So... Um, A little bit, just a brief intro to her story, because this is a novel, and the scene we picked is is about halfway through? Okay, so it's it's close to the halfway mark of the novel, so there are many subplots in her book. It's not just about first love, but this particular scene, I'll give you the broad brush that you need for context. I wouldn't attempt to give you the complete... (laughs) Um, story so far. But what you need to know is that her main character, Catriona, was born in Elysium, and then she was taken to our world to be raised for her first 16 years, and then brought back to Elysium. She was brought to our world to protect her from those who would kill her. And she was brought back to Elysium at 16, where she meets Kieran, who is her soulmate, The thing about 
Elysium, though, is that soulmates are not necessarily romantically involved. And in, in fact, it's rare. So Kieran has no particular romantic context for that word. And Catriona has decided that there's something she really must do. But there's a problem because soulmates can sense each other. And she knows that if Kieran knows what she is going to do, he will try to prevent her. So she intends to keep him from keeping her from doing what she chooses to do. And here's the excerpt from Awake My Soul. This is YA, so there is kissing. Just a warning. (laughs) I push open the door, ready to follow through with this sounding dumber by the minute plan, and stop. The room is two stories tall, and the wall directly across from me is floor-to-ceiling books. I gape at the rows and rows of leather spines, dusty from years of disuse, but still beautiful in the afternoon light. You figured out how to hide your feelings. Kieran's voice pulls my gaze away from the library wall. He's standing in the far corner, leaning against a heavy ladder that rests against the wall of books. The ladder's on tracks that span the length of the wall, allowing readers easy access to the stories living on the shelves 20 feet up. But Kieran isn't looking at book titles. He's staring out a wide window, resting his hip on the front of the ladder, casually waiting for me, I'm sure. I walk further into the room, stopping a few feet behind him, but Kieran doesn't turn. You managed to push them down for a few seconds, he says, his voice hollow. But the pain was too much, wasn't it? I decided that I didn't have anything to hide from you, I say. The sun's beginning to dim, falling nearer to the top of the trees that border Kieran's back lawn. He turns then, studying me. I shift under his gaze, wondering if he knows. Liar. I laugh. Maybe you just make me nervous, Kieran. He shakes his head, a smile threatening at the corners of his mouth. No, that isn't it. He stands casually, his hands tucked into his pockets, his shoulders relaxed. But something is bothering him. I can feel it. Something he's pushing down beneath the worry and amusement that always fills him. A secret he isn't ready to share. What were you thinking about in here alone, I ask, not sure I want to know the answer. He shrugs, unease flowing off him in invisible waves. I was thinking about the dreams. He leans back against the ladder, resting his head on one of the rungs and staring at the ceiling, avoiding my eyes as he speaks. Sometimes I wish I didn't remember that the dreams would stop and I was living my life for the first time with no history coloring every choice I make, every relationship I have. No nightmares or hidden memories or images of people that you know you hurt, I add, stepping closer. The toes of my sneakers hit the front of his boots and he lifts his head, looking at me with sad eyes. Exactly. No legion or council or unfixable mistakes. No secrets, I say softly. This isn't how I saw this going. I thought he would argue with me about leaving, accuse me of being reckless and flighty. It would be easy to do what needs to be done if we were fighting, if I didn't understand completely where he's coming from. The setting sun shines brightly through the glass, painting shadows across Kieran's face, hiding just as many parts of him as it highlights. He reaches across the space between us and grips one of my hands in his. That small touch heightens all the emotions between us. My skin sparks with heat and my pulse doubles. I squeeze his hand back, hoping he knows that he isn't alone in this, no matter what secrets he holds. He shakes his head slightly and tries to pull his hand back. Catriona, I can't let you leave. Stop, I say, placing my free hand on his chest. If I'm going to piss him off and run away in a few minutes anyway, why shouldn't I get to have this moment at least? I lean into him, twisting my hand in his t-shirt and feeling his breath quicken in his chest. The air seems to thicken, and instead of pulling away, he holds my other hand tighter. 
It's all the encouragement I need. I let go of his shirt and move my hand to the back of his head, threading my fingers through his hair and pulling him down to me. He closes his eyes and rests his forehead on mine, not fighting it. Catriona, he says so softly, I seem to feel the word across my skin rather than hear it. I kiss him. I thought the kiss from last night was good. It has nothing on this. This is a goodbye and an apology and a wish. It's pressure and heat. Our hands still grip each other tightly, his fingers winding between mine, my nails digging into the skin on the back of his. His lips are smooth and soft, and they open up to me, pulling me in and making me wish I could sink into him and forget everything else. His free hand moves up to my back, brushing through my hair before sliding to my side and pulling me tighter. I break away from his mouth and rest my forehead on his again, catching my breath and trying to remember why the hell I came in here. Karen opens his eyes, and for a second we just stare, enjoying what remains of the moment. And then Karen moves his hands to my shoulders, forcing me to take a step back. It's cold standing without him. I can't do this with you, Catriona. Any joy that I might have imagined seeing, is leaving, seeing leaving, leaves his face. He steps away from the ladder, looking out the window once again. Not until you know. This is getting to be a really unfortunate pattern. Kiss me and then regret it after. I'm hardly forcing him, and honestly, it's getting a little old. You know what, I ask, throwing my hands up. Wow, just when I think you aren't a complete idiot. He turns to face me, the crease on his brow deep and the set of his mouth firm. There's just so much you don't know, and I shouldn't have done that. I feel like I'm taking advantage, and he stumbles over his words. I speak before he can make it worse. Better for me to make it worse, I guess. All right, stop. Don't apologize or say anything to ruin the moment even more. I say, wishing I would rewind five minutes so I can just handcuff him and leave. Oh, he raises his eyebrows and his mouth tilts in an amused smile. Are you going to say something to ruin the moment instead? Yeah, probably, I mumble. This is not going according to plan. I might as well take it one more horrible step further, since we've already made things awkward. I'm going to say something right now that is probably a little too honest, and I will most definitely regret it as soon as I say it, but damn it, you need to hear it. I pause, pulling in a deep breath and trying to slow my heart. I point my finger at him, and he stands up a little straighter. I'm only saying this once, okay? I'm not the kind of girl who's going to keep following you around, begging and debating and trying to win you from willowy, willowy blonde chicks who don't throw knives and such. Got it? Did you just say chicks? <laughs> I like you. Saying it aloud isn't as much of a relief as I thought it might be. If anything, it just makes me more nervous and shaky. It also makes me ramble. I know that we're soulmates and that you don't think that has any romantic implications, which might be true, but it does for me, and I think I would feel the same way even if things were different. He opens his mouth to speak, and I slap my hand over it, his hot breath tickling my palm. And I know you probably won't let me forget this moment for all eternity, but I like you. Not like you as a friend like you, but like you, like you. In that silly, want-to-hold-your-hand way and fight-off-murderous-men-at-your-side-every-day kind of way. <laughs> though, probably not at the same time. And I think you're funny and kind, even though sometimes you pretend that you're not. And I should stop right there, but oh no, I keep going. And you're not bad-looking either. But... Don't let that go to your head too much, because your hair is an official disaster and completely beyond redemption, and, and I just feel good when I'm around you, even with all the crazy that keeps popping up, and even when you're annoying and grouchy or whatever. And even though I know you're still keeping something from me, something big and probably less terrible than you think it is, even with all that, I like you. I stop and remove my hand from his face. My palms damp, and I'm short of breath and feeling terribly sweaty. Should I open a window? Is it hot in here? So, he says, search my face. I'm not bad looking. <laughs> That's what you want to focus on? Seriously? I'm not joking here, Kieran. 
no, Catriona, I... He blushes. Pink actually spreads up from the collar of his shirt and blossoms on his cheeks. I want to laugh, but I'm too busy feeling like I might vomit. That was a lot of honesty, he says. Well, tact has never been my strong suit, obviously. He sighs, leaning back against the ladder again and rubbing his hands over his face. Catriona. And with that one word, his regret starts flooding out of him, its heaviness weighing down my shoulders. It's so painful and overbearing that I can't dig past it to anything, he may, anything else he may be feeling. Rejection. Man, it tastes just as bitter as I thought it would. Okay, great. I step closer to him again, and my hand shakes, my hand shakes as I reach out for his, pulling it away from his face. His callous skin, tough from years of wielding a heavy sword, is rough against my palm. He looks sad, probably thinking I need comforting. Catriona, I wish, but I never hear his wish. I move quick, grabbing the heavy cuffs from behind me and slapping one end on his wrist with a loud clink. I tug and fasten the other end to the closest rung of the library ladder, falling back a few steps when it's done, moving well out of reach before he realizes what happened. The metal sings as he yanks against the chain, his eyes wide and stormy. What do you think you're doing? Now, just so we're clear, this was going to happen no matter how you responded earlier. <laughs> I smile sweetly, though I thought I would feel worse about it than I do. More guilty, maybe, but I actually feel okay. It's true, seeing him shocked and pissed off makes me feel pretty good about the whole situation. Plus, under his anger, he's just a little impressed, and I, I can feel the glow of it under the rage. You can't just leave me here, he says, jerking the chain once more. The ladder slides on the track as he pulls, bumping him lightly, but the chain holds tight. Thank you, Ashley. You know, I don't read a lot of YA fiction. Actually, I do. I have two preteen daughters. But um, <laughs> when I do, it has to be that good. That was great. Thank you so much. Okay, so next up, a poet. Total change of pace. Take a deep breath. Yeah, it's, it is. Yeah, poetry. All right. Um, I'm going to read uh, Seth Brady Tucker. Um, Drafted Madeline Garner, who's an amazing poet. She's been a student in my classes a few times. Um, and here's what he has to say. Did I say who it was? Did I say Seth Brady Tucker? Yeah, did I say somebody else? Oh, I did. Okay, good. It's past my bedtime. Note from Seth Madeline is a peach. She is a dedicated and critical lover of poetry who just happens to be pretty damn talented to boot. She is crisp and decisive in her workshop critiques, crisp and decisive with her poetry. She is extremely well-read and has an innate grasp of technique. I am her instructor, but I, am also, I also just happen to be a fan. Her poetry is muscular and vivid and important. Her poetry asks the big questions about life and death, love and hate. She is a scuba diver, and this is my favorite part, she is a scuba diver, diver of verse in a world where most skim across the surface. <laughs> Seth is a poet, by the way, in case you were wondering. Her subjects are courageous and lovely. Quote, in the end, you set the shutter speed on infinity, infinity and let death come, end quote. Her poems take us from tragedy to redemption, redemption and back again with lyrical intensity. Even these clipped fingernails, luminous seeds, tossed to a devouring ground, this disintegrating house. Those are lines of Madeline's poetry. Madeline doesn't just turn a phrase. She whispers sweet lovelies into her reader's ear, even as she wrenches their arm back to the point of breaking. 
All right, give it up for Madeline Garner. After that, I think I'll go home. <laughs> you got all the important parts. I'm so used to giving, and I'm, my brain is hardwired hard for an hour lecture and 15-minute QA, so I wrote out everything today. So you wouldn't be here till tomorrow morning. It is interesting, all the, and this is the intro to the first poem, and lengthy because it needs some explanation. It is interesting all the games people play, but the most deliciously artistic and intellectual one I've played in recent years one was one based on the game of gossip. Maybe you remember it. Play it at a camp or a school. One person starts a rumor and tells it to another who passes it on until at the end of the line, the last one says what they heard. And it's usually very twisted and changed and frequently funny. A group of us who, over the last decade, have produced 19 ekphrasis events in numerous cities, including Memphis, San Francisco, Albuquerque, Denver, and in the spring of 2014, Phoenix, decided after a show in Berkeley on a concept based on the game of gossip. We decided we would alternate a work of art with a poem in a cycle in which an artist or poet would view and respond only to the preceding work. As an overarching theme, we, would, we asked ourselves this question. Over time and space, how would a single image reiterate? How would that single image become transformed? A gallery was found and a curator named. Ten poets and ten artists signed up anonymously. The curator picked an art piece from the gallery and sent a JPEG of the image to the first poet, having first stripped off all the identifying features. The poet was given two weeks to write a poem based solely on the image and then returned the poem back to the curator, who then took off all the identifying materials and sent it on to an artist to create a work within three weeks. The game took a year to complete. I don't know how many of you would want to invest a year in one, one thing, but that's what we all committed to do. Two weeks before the grand unveiling to artists, guests, and public, we delivered our framed poems and artwork to the gallery. The night of the show, which the curator had staged and draped with cloths, we unveiled one piece at a time. At that point was the first time we had seen what had happened to a single image over time and space. What playing the game did for me is to send me into a poetic arena I rarely visit. The image I was sent seemed based on the Southwest, the background most likely the area around Taos. Now, I never write about the Southwest, and I rarely write about place. In the foreground was a large abstract blue figure looking like it was dancing, which immediately called to mind a clown or jester. I never write about either. Then I thought, and I'll never know why, Hioka, the sacred clown spirit of the Lakotas. And again, I never write about American Indian tribes, even though I lived on the Crow Reservation when I was young. The interesting thing about the Ohioka is that his contrarian spirit manifests itself doing things unconventionally, riding a horse backward, wearing clothes inside out, undressing in freezing weather, 
even dipping his arms into boiling water and bringing them out unscathed. All this done to challenge our complacency, our routines, our inability to fool around. You're seeing the connection to the theme of our phrases game, right? And so the poem. Hioka squared by two. What we see is this. Streams of photons, light waves vibrating on the artist's brush, thick with berries and bark and bone, erases a lead-white field into potentiality. A body's curves, fretwork of underbrush, Charmisa charged canyon floor and the flaring rose of morning. I have been thinking about a painting of a hyoka, cloaked in black, laughing shaman in a field of profound blue, the depths he is passing through, backwards and forward toward the mesa's blushing flanks, overhead the weight of congenial red, borne on pickly pear, is air or soul, also idea a bird, variations in dust, hint of rain, joker as lightning bait. Consider how a singular neurological event jolts the brain into syntactic rearrangement. Hioka wearing his clothes inside out, pounding round things straight. Or does it begin with a story? The artist walking out into the field of juniper and mesquite sets up his easel and begins brush-stroking a furious sky onto canvas, river of eternal blue, a figure revising landscape into truth. Tell me, Hoka, what colors does a blind man see? Out of art subtext, truth rises, blush, bruise, or as Hioka knows, reaching his arms into a boiling point pot to bring forth God bones, an unexpected Zen slap. I worked over two decades in Denver with various gangs, especially the Crips and Bloods. That was an interesting experience. And with the Denver Police Gang Unit, school resource officers, and various rescue groups. What occurred to me over the years is how the wannabes, age 8 through 13, see gang activity as a game. They talk of rules, of winners and losers, of prizes and rewards. In fact, one of the major problems in rescuing teens from gang life is that we can't seem to present them with an alternative that is as as much fun, challenging, important as life in the gang, despite the tragic consequences of it. This second poem, then, is about a family member assaulted in East L.A. by a young group of gang members. Probably attacked as part of a gang initiation, he was beaten unconscious and left with a broken jaw, cracked ribs, concussion, and multiple cuts and bruises. The poem is about that event. Late at night, you walked out the door of your third floor Silver Lake studio, out the Otis elevator, out the serpentine security gate past concrete walls, color walloped with graffiti, piss, vomit, through the fog of vented steam and its sibilant hiss, pocket of greasy heat between dumpsters, hard-slung curses in the air, dangers the ears inlet 
and canals did not recognize before the neighborhood crew, their skin corrupted by numerology and fuck-offs, flushed you out, smashed your face with fists and steel-toed boots as if to eliminate the flaw in you, in them. Neighbors deafened by televisions, waves upon waves of gleaming appliances and spinning wheels, heard nothing. Not your cries. Not the dark altered by rumors of red froth. Not your bones stunned and buckling death's bloody print on you. The last poem focuses on what I call the blame game. It is based on my sister being sexually attacked in a nursing home six months before she died of Alzheimer's at the age of 56. The perpetrator, who was arrested in the locked section of the facility, somehow was able to unlock the security door, use the elevator to the second floor, and find my sister's room. I only found out about the attack the next day, and obviously I went over to the home to discuss the situation and to find out what had been done, and that's when the blame game began. No one seemed to know how he got out, if he had attacked her before, if she had internal injuries, etc. I also discovered the attack hadn't been reported to the police or social services. It would take more than a month to have him removed to a more secure institution. And by the way, they found him again uh, two weeks later in a room. My anger at the, ga- uh, at the game administrators and management played was the inciting factor for this poem, but it ultimately deals with how conflicted I felt about the event itself. Torn between wishing that she didn't have Alzheimer's and the related notion that she might have been able to fight him off, and indeed I think she could have, versus the relief that her mind was gone. She didn't know what was happening, and of course would not remember it. Demented, what does my sister know? As if the weight on her is a fisherman. Tongue bait, she rises from dead water dreams, hooked by his hunger, and not caring if she is entangled in rubber tubing or hospital gown. A few sparking neurons might offer up a memory with some lover, who can't be. The only brain left, infantile. She rise, frenetic eel, jaws snapping at his anchoring arm pressed against her throat. The restless ward keens with patience waking to sounds unfound in sleep. Now she is drifting, dumb to blood-splattered topography, her bluing body. Nothing lives in this water. Thank you, Madeline. Okay, last up, we have Dan Manzanares. He will be introduced by a very talented writer in his own right and one of our most popular instructors, Doug Kurtz. Thanks, Mike. 
Uh, hi, everybody. Look at all of you. Thanks for coming to hear uh, Dan read from his novel in progress, A Threat to Rise. I think all of you have experienced Dan's unique awesomeness as a dude. <laughs> where, where is Dan? I don't even see There he is. And uh, now you get to experience it in his writing, which is great. His prose has a rhythm and language all its own, and uh, it's explosively sensory. The images in it last long after the reading's over. Uh, and like the man itself, himself, itself. <laughs> I don't know. It could go either way sometimes. Um, the storyline's quirky, original, very fond of gardens, and it's not quite like anything that you've seen before. So protagonist Leaf, after being banished from the war-torn horticultural dreamland where he lives, travels to Queen City to land a job at the Botanic Gardens as a curatorial assistant. This employment will enable him to compete for an award he hopes will elevate him to the horticultural status of his mother and grandmother and get him invited back home. So we're going to enter the story in backcountry near Chaco Canyon, New Mexico, where Leaf has just been stripped of his sexual innocence at the hands of a desert cult queen. And he's now being carried wounded and unconscious to a hallucinogenic tea maker. Uh, and there, there are... <laughs> so here's some definitions that you need to know, if I, if I can say them. Ayahuasca is a woody South American vine that, when boiled with chacruna leaves, creates a hallucinogenic tea used in Amazon Indian ceremonies. Uh, oh gosh, this one I always get wrong. Cholia cactus is a tree-like cactus with knobby outgrowths and yellow spines. And electuary is a pasty mass composed of a, of a medicine, usually in powder form, mixed in a palatable medium such as syrup, or in the case of leaf with honey. Here's Dan. Macerated ayahuasca vine brewed in rainwater, a flat pile of mesquite burned under a kettle. Chacruna leaves bubbled out copper drug from waxy veins. Cloud froth rose from the small red-brown bog. Segments of thick, twisted cords of ayahuasca vine sat on a braided mat of yucca leaf. The shape of the vine was a braided helix. A straight-edge machete lay on the ground next to the chopped vine. The tea maker waved her tattooed palm over the moist steam. She breathed in a waft of the drugged air current and grimaced approval. The woman walked away from her boiling preparations and went into her casita. She retrieved a cup of water from the brown-tiled kitchen counter and drank. She then took up a ladle that hung above the sink, the pocked metal of its bowl filled with light. She called the light Nagizi, the light of her land, the land of the ancient people, her ancestors who once ruled Chaco. When she returned to the kettle and set the ladle to the brew, she hesitated before pulling up a volume of the hallucinogenic tea. 
coming out of the dusk-washed flats of her land were the figures of two people, a rescuer and someone rescued. They moved slowly. The rescuer, a red-haired woman, had Leaf's arm across her shoulders. One of her hands held him by the wrist while her arm hugged his waist. Leaf hadn't yet reached his full height or weight. Still, the rescuer struggled with her burden but could manage it. The tea maker worked quickly and portioned out her brew. Then she took up the machete and severed two green-gray leaves from the old agave next to the kitchen window and placed the clovis-shaped needled leaves into the bottom of the cooling kettle to soak up the potent dregs of the brew. She didn't bother to hide the ingredients or remnants of her preparations. The tea maker hailed the strangers, her triangle tattoos exposed, and with her other hand brought a cup to her mouth and downed a dose of the ayahuasca. Leaf's feet dragged in the dirt. The bare toes were bruised and cut by quartz shards. The boy made no account of the pain. His head bobbed. His rescuer carefully laid him on the bed of freshly turned soil in front of the tea maker. Sweat dampened her face, and she took Leaf's duffel bag from her shoulder and set it on the ground and rotated her shoulders to get the ache out. Leaf remained motionless except for the rise and fall of his chest. The two women didn't speak. Next to the soil bed was a flattened tool roll. The tea maker grabbed a root hook from its leather loop on the roll. She set the long claw of it between Leaf's thigh and the embedded arm of the cholya cactus and ripped it from his leg. The boy's back arched shallow. He frowned and his eyes opened, but they remained vacant and unfocused. He tried rolling onto his injured leg, but the team maker kept him, kept him from, from completing the half-conscious revolution. Hold him, she said. Leaf's rescuer gripped his shoulder and hip. The tea maker then picked up a pair of pruners from her tool set. The sharpened metal was shaped like a beak. She cut into the jeans cuff and scissored up the jeans length. A few cholya spines stuck out of the jean mid-thigh and she made a path through them with the pruners. Where the jean began bunching at the front pocket, she stopped. The tea maker bent over the leg. She grabbed the jean sutured to the inner thigh by the cholya spines and in one hard jerk ripped the spines from the flesh. Leaf cried out, but still couldn't form words either in protest or to question what was happening to him. She stepped over him, grabbed the outer side of the spine-pierced jean and jerked them free. She took up the pruners, lifted Leaf's leg from the ground and cut away the back part of the jean. Without removing the cholya spines from the fabric, she swept the jean from underneath leaf, tossed it toward the fire pit, and guided his naked leg back to the bed of soil. A few thin lines of blood striped leaf's thigh from the holes made by the cactus. The boy's eyes were closed again. He began mumbling to himself. The tea maker went into her casita and came back outside holding a small jar. When she opened the lid, the air filled with honey odor. She dipped a pestle into the jar and raised it above the cholya wounds. Strings of ruby-colored ruby honey fell directly onto the bloody punctures. The topical electuary, its crushed-up medicine dotting the honey, slowed the flow of blood and stopped it. Leaf began to shiver. Do you know how to make a fire? The tea maker asked. Leaf's rescuer stood and went to the fire pit. She removed the bubbling pot from the embered fire and tried to place it further from the tea maker, but the woman barked, Give it to me. 
the rescuer complied, handing over the kettle and started to break kindling. She logged a pyramid, used a pair of a pair of shears to cut up the useless jean leg into thin strips, wound them between the wood, and waited for her hostess to set a blaze in the pit. When the tea maker blew across the embers, the red flames jumped from the coals to the kindling. The area next to the casita warmed. Heat reflected off the adobe wall. The fire rose above, high above the wood. Leaf stopped shivering and his body relaxed. Do you have something for his eardrums? They're ruptured, said Leaf's rescuer. How do you know? Dry rivulets of blood ran crusted from both earlobes and down the sides of the boy's neck. I've seen it before, she said. The tea maker spit. What happened to him? He thinks a tornado. The tea maker eyed her and said, he thinks a tornado. <laughs> Tornadoes, actually. You can read what he thinks? The tea maker asked. The rescuer smiled. He mumbled it on our way over here. What really happened? Psychosomatic trauma mixed with dehydration, I think. Lucky fool. Leaf's rescuer rubbed her hands near the flames. Little is made from luck these days, she said. What do you mean? I mean that he found you and your people inside Fahada Butte. The tea maker stared at the woman sitting fireside to Leaf. Leaf's rescuer caught the glance. She said, you have joyless hands. Do you know that? Your face looks like it has never taken a smile to this world. The butte is ours, said the tea maker. She blinked rapidly. The boy's body was forfeited when he trespassed. Darkness brightened the fire. The shadows of the two women on the adobe fainted toward and away from each other. Leaf lay between those dark images. He was sent, said the rescuer. You sent him to us. I sent him to see the petroglyphs. Did he know that? No, he and I have never met. If I had known, I wouldn't have taken him in that way. Don't say that, said Leaf's rescuer. What? Don't say that. Everything worked out beautifully for him. The tea maker looked down at Leaf's broken body. The deranged lines of his face fought demons. So ugly, 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 she said. The most beautiful thing about innocence said Leaf's rescuer, is when it's lost. She sat cross-legged, leaning back on her hands, elbows locked, but then she rested her elbows on her knees and extended her hands towards the tea maker. Slowly, her fingers rubbed across her thumbs. Slowly, in the firelit dark, a scratching. Fear went out from the tea maker's eyes to hear those fingers work, but when she spoke, she leaned in closer to him. She asked, "'Who is innocent?' For all the guaranteed structure of your desert gardens, their seasonal predictability, if the innocence isn't there, then it's nowhere, said the rescuer. The tea maker went silent with contemplation. Enough time had passed for the ayahuasca to feed her a vision. She started to sway. Nonsense and knowledge dilated her pupils. Scratching echoed. Fire burned and popped the wood. The scrawling sounds of things being shaped peeled back the dialogue. In that moment of dissolving reality, Leaf's regulated unconscious breathing broke. He coughed and moaned, pain fused to his body. Slowly, he put his palms to his 
his ears to try to ward away the soft nothing of soundlessness. The tea maker viewed Leaf coming to, and her spine twitched straight. She rose, and using the ruse of fattening the fire, she turned furiously toward her kettle. She grabbed an agave leaf soaked in ayahuasca. Before Leaf could see what new fortune his molester from, Mah- from Fajada Butte was going to spin for him, she lunged forward, the agave needles glistening with poison, and she stabbed him in the throat. Thank you. Damn. He, Dan is such an incredibly hard worker, but he's also an incredibly talented writer, isn't he? That's amazing. So let's give it up for our instructors and our readers tonight. Thank you so much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.